this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host ji sampat it's now exactly 2 years since russia invaded ukraine According to President Volodymyr Zelensky, so far 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have perished in the war. Millions of Ukrainians have been displaced. The population in territories under Kyiv's control has shrunk from 52 million to 30 million, while the country's economy has been devastated. As for Russia, after initial setbacks likely caused by an underestimation of Ukraine's capacity for resistance, It has now modified its tactics and settled into a long-term war of attrition. Russia's economy is doing well despite western sanctions. In the meantime, there are question marks over the West's will to continue its military aid to Ukraine with the same intensity as before. With no signs of the conflict ending anytime soon, in this episode of In Focus, we look back at the past 2 years to understand what have been the gains and losses for all the sides involved. What does the third year of this war have in store? Will it see one of the sides gaining a decisive advantage? And what needs to happen before either side decides that enough is enough? We are joined by Stanley Johnny the Hindu's international affairs editor. Stanley, welcome back to In Focus. Thanks Ambat. Thanks for having me here. Uh Stanley uh so it's been 2 years since the fighting began we have done uh, a number of podcasts on this particular uh, subject can you give us a quick overview of where the both the sides stand today militarily uh, which side has the edge if either side uh, does have an edge so clearly the russians have an edge as of now so they have taken the battlefield momentum because you see what happened on the battlefield recently since december so we know that the ukrainians started their counteroffensive in june 2023 it was a much anticipated counteroffensive and they started this with western training very advanced western weapons and there was much talk before june that the ukrainians uh would push into the front line and what they wanted to do which is now uh, you know evident Uh, what they wanted to do was to cut through the russian lines of defense and then link up with uh, the black sea, with the black sea in in sea of azov and cut off the russian land bridge from donetsk and lugansk to crimea this is what they wanted to do but the ukrainian counteroffensive failed and then uh, the russian started limited attacks basically in four pockets and in december the russians took marinka and just a few weeks ago they took avdivka which is a major setback for the ukrainians what is the, what exactly is the what is the significance of this avdivka being uh, sort of uh, taken over by the russians there has been a lot of reports but not very clear what is the significance of this particular battle. it is a major settlement in donetsk if you look at the map Donetsk and Lugansk make up the Donbas region. And when the crisis began in 2014, uh after the civil war broke out, there were this self-declared people's armies in both these regions. So they took parts of Donetsk and Lugansk. So Avdivka, the Russian speaking rebels 
in Donbass. They wanted to take over Avdivka, but they couldn't initially. And it was from Avdivka, the Ukrainian forces were repeatedly shelling Donetsk city. So Donetsk city is the largest city in, in the Donetsk Oblast, which is now which has been now annexed by the Russians. So over the last uh, 10 years, if you look at what was happening from 2014, so Avdivka was a major Ukrainian uh, fortified settlement from where they attacked Donetsk city or the Russian troops on the front line. And the Russians have been trying to take this over, but they couldn't do it in the past. So now what happens is that they have pushed the Ukrainian troops further towards the west and they have expanded their hold in Donetsk. Lugansk is more or less under the Russian control. And so Russia has annexed, annexed Donetsk, Lugansk, Saporizhia, and Kherson. So what we are witnessing now is that after capturing Lugansk, the front line has kind of frozen. Now the Russians are breaking into the frozen front line and taking up more territories. And Avdivka, which is strategically significant, which has been a highly fortified Ukrainian uh, settlement, you know, at least since the beginning of the conflict for the last 10 years. So the fall of Avdivka is a major military setback for the Ukrainians. And for the Russians, it signifies that they can now protect the Donetsk city from Ukrainian shelling. That is one thing. And secondly, they are now expanding their hold over the Donetsk Oblast. And then thirdly, what we are witnessing after the fall of Avdivka is that the Ukrainian defense in the west of Avdivka is kind of collapsing because the Russians have taken Pobeda, which is a small village west of Avdivka. And then just uh, last week, they have taken Lastoshkain, which is also a major village west of uh, Avdivka. So the Ukrainians, I think, have realized, or the new commander has realized that it is not practically possible to defend uh, the front line in Donetsk. So they are now making calculated retreat while the Russians are advancing. So clearly Russia has now the battlefield momentum on their side. And this is not only in Donetsk. But currently the Russians are, you know, attacking in four pockets. So they are also attacking in, in the Kharkiv region in uh, in the northeast. And then, of course, in Avdivka and in and around Bakhmut, at the town which the Russians captured in May, and then in Robotin towards the south uh, in the Saporizhia region. So what the Russians are doing, they, you know, rest of the battlefield front line is frozen, but they have opened four pockets where they are piling up military pressure on the Ukrainian forces, making incremental advances. Right. I mean, uh, there have also been talk of a summer offensive uh, from the Russian side. Is that uh, is that likely? Yeah, you, Zelensky said this. I mean, Zelensky himself said this. Zelensky said a summer offensive is coming and we are prepared for that. That's This is the exact quote. The Russians haven't said this. But if you take Zelensky seriously, yes, the Russians are also preparing for a major summer offensive. Right. Now, in the early months of the war, Stanley, when Russia uh, suffered some unexpected military setbacks, they had to withdraw, you know, from a couple of cities they had captured. Now, what adjustments or changes in tactics did Russia make over the course of the war that you have noticed in order to be able to change things around, turn things around, so to speak? Yeah, I think now it's evident that Putin made a major strategic miscalculation when he ordered his special military operations, quote-unquote. 
because you know we know that the Russians went to war with less than two hundred thousand troops uh, against Europe's second largest country after Russia, which was an ally of NATO. Uh, you know the United States and Europe. And what the Russians expected when they launched the war was to make quick gains and meet their military objectives within days. That didn't happen. And in the initial phase of the war, the Russians were spread thin uh, in several parts of Ukraine. So that Ukraine could actually exploit the Russian weakness and make some swift counteroffensive uh, moves and push them out of Kharkiv and uh, Kherson. And before that, Russians had withdrawn from Bucha and other surroundings of Kyiv because the Russians had realized that it was not practically possible for them to hold the territories. So first they withdrew on their own and later on they were pushed back and they suffered humiliating retreat in Kherson, uh, in Kherson and uh, Kharkiv. But then you see by September 2022, Putin immediately announced a partial mobilization, which means the Russians realized that they wanted more troops on the battlefield. They knew that their initial strategy backfired. So then they went for a partial mobilization. They mobilized some 300,000 troops. And then Russia's focus, if you look at the battlefield dynamics from mid-2022 to mid-2023, what the Russians were doing, they, the fighting was mainly focused on Bakhmut. So, and, and the Ukrainians were also sending a lot of soldiers to Bakhmut. Ukraine did not want to lose Bakhmut. So when the Ukrainians and the Russians were fighting in Bakhmut, Russia actually was buying time to train the new recruits and build strong defense fortifications along the front line. So at that time, if you recall uh, the Western media coverage and commentary by the military experts, everybody was saying that the Russians were making a major mistake in Bakhmut because Bakhmut was not a strategically important place in Donetsk and the Russians were losing a lot of men in Bakhmut. But now I think there is some sort of a clarity. What the Russians wanted to do was to keep the Ukrainians engaged in the battlefield while buying time. And, uh, you know, what they did. So they mobilized, they trained them, and they built strong defense fortifications along the front line. And building defense lines is a Russian forte, right? They've been doing it from 18th century. So by the time Ukraine launched the counteroffensive, the Russians were prepared. So their focus was on holding the line. And Ukraine launched the counteroffensive with some of the very advanced weapons, right? Because, you know, do, I mean, you, you might be recalling the discussion we had about the West supplying uh, main battle tanks, uh, missile defense systems, armored vehicles, uh, long-range missiles, short-range missiles, um, guided munition, etc., etc. All kind of weapons Ukraine was getting. So, and tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops were being trained in the West. And there were also these foreign legion troops, basically mercenaries, who were recruited from other Western countries who were also fighting on the battlefield. So Ukraine was really preparing for the counteroffensive, while on the other side, the Russians, with the newly re recruited personnel, were preparing for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So now, um, eight months after the Ukrainian counteroffensive began, I think the verdict is out. The Russians held the line. Ukraine failed to break through uh, the defensive lines. Not just that. I think Ukraine has also suffered major uh, losses, humanitarian and material losses, human and material losses uh, during the counteroffensive, eight months long counteroffensive. And this also results.
resulted in other kind of friction within the Ukrainian leadership, right? Because uh, the, the, the armed forces, the commander of the armed forces, who was considered a hero uh, at the early stage of the war, was sacked by President Zelensky just a few weeks earlier. So Ukraine now realizes that they are now on the back foot. Uh, so it suggests that the Russian preparations and the Russian tactics have worked, at least for now. Right. Now, uh, even though Russia has uh, some kind of an edge, as you rightly pointed out and explained just now, Stanley, there is uh, there is a perception among uh, many Western analysts that we're reading that uh, the current stalemate can only be broken by a side through some sort of a decisive uh, technological uh, change or advantage, you know, such as Ukraine getting the latest fighter aircraft or electronic uh, warfare capabilities and so on. And, and Macron, for instance, has also talked about not ruling out uh, troops on the ground, you know, NATO troops or whatever Western troops, we don't know for sure. So do you agree with this assessment? And if yes, can advanced Western military tech supplies to Ukraine uh, tilt the balance in its favor, especially given that Russia has been, because of the sanctions, cut off from upgrading its you know, technological weaponry and so on? Uh, yeah, uh, so two years after the war, we can... Uh, I think, say with confidence that the sanctions haven't worked. Russia always found a way to work around the sanctions. Sanctions haven't worked to weaken the Russian economy. Russia suffered, uh, you know, setbacks, definitely. They must have lost billions uh, in revenue. But sanctions did nothing to prevent, to stop, or even to slow down Putin's war machine, if that's what the Western goal was. And Russian economy is growing. You know, I think it grew two point uh, whatever percent last year in 2023. Uh, and Russia has also moved, pivoted towards uh, Asia, where it found welcoming partners in India, China, and even in Brazil and South America. So the sanctions regime did not clearly work to slow down Putin's war machine. That is one thing. Or to weaken or to cripple Russian economy. No, it hasn't worked. And then secondly, the weapons part for Ukraine to break the stalemate. Uh, see, this was the argument uh, they've been making for the last two years. Because when the war began, I think the West expected Russians to make a quick victory. Because uh, even the United States shut down the embassy in Kiev and moved to Lviv on the Polish border. When that didn't happen, the United States started supporting Ukraine with weapons. And, you know, it was a gradual uh, the supply had picked up gradually. Initially, it was just shells and ammunition. Then it became short-range rockets. Then it became long-range cruise missiles. Then it became Patriot missile defense system. Then it became striker-armored vehicles. Then the French came in, went in. Uh, the, the, the Germans went in. There was a huge debate about uh, uh, the German battle tanks, uh, Challenger, right? Challenger battle tanks. The Americans were also sending their battle tanks. The British were sending their battle tanks. So, there was this debate was always there to provide advanced weapons to Ukraine. And gradually, uh, the NATO members, the United States, UK, France, Germany, and others were sending weapons, advanced, very advanced weapons to Ukraine. But the fact on the ground is that this hasn't worked in the counteroffensive. This didn't work in the counteroffensive. Despite weapons and training, Western training, Ukraine failed to make any major breakthrough in the counteroffensive. And it also says, I mean, there are people, defense experts were making this argument that what Ukraine actually wants uh, is not these advanced weapons or missiles or even aircraft. What they actually want is shells and ammunition. 
which the West is not able to provide enough because the West's production capacity is limited. Europe's production capacity is limited. Whereas Russia's defense industrial complex is now uh, returned to the pre-war levels. This is what the New York Times report says. In terms of the production of shells, ammunition, even long-range missiles, Russian Defense Ministry says that they produced some 1,500 tanks just last year. Uh, so on the one side, the Russia, Russia has a fully functional defense industrial complex, which is producing uh, the weapons that the Russian troops need. While on the other side, Ukraine is entirely dependent on the West, and it is not getting uh, not you know not not enough uh, enough ammunition and artillery shells. So there is a disparity on the battlefield. So this is one of the challenges Ukraine is facing. And then secondly, uh, Ukraine lost a lot of men, right? Okay, uh, Zelensky's number of thirty-one thousand. I'm not taking it seriously because I don't think like the Russians. The Russians are also not giving us honest figures. The Ukrainians also may not be doing this. But if you look at the statement of uh, the former commander, uh, Valery Zalushny, so the former commander asked Zelensky to mobilize 500,000 people. So he said that the Ukraine was facing an acute shortage of fighters on the battlefront. So that also speaks volumes of Ukraine's condition on the front line. So you know, they might get weapon from the West, but where will they find people? So that is another question Ukraine is facing. And the thirdly, Macron uh, comment, if you ask me, it is madness. But I don't think this is happening because I don't think uh, even Macron Macron refused to rule it out. But uh, I don't think even France is has eager. France has the stomach to send French troops to Ukraine. Uh, and Sweden, Slovakia and Germany have already turned down Macron's ambivalence, strategic ambiguity. So Germany has clearly said that there is a consensus in the EU and NATO to support Ukraine to fight the Russians and not to send troops or not to get directly involved in the war. And uh, Slovak uh, leader, as well as Sweden, uh, has also said the same thing. Because the Russians on the other side have clearly said that if NATO sends troops to Ukraine, that would be equal to breaching a red line. So I don't think that NATO has the stomach to breach the red line as of now. but they would try to supply Ukraine. They would try to, you know, get better supplies to Ukraine so that they can continue to uh, fight the Russians. That is a clear possibility. Right. I mean, speaking of, you know, uh, the point you made, Stanley, about uh, Ukraine needing more shells and ammunition rather than latest uh, technology. I mean, I, I read somewhere that uh, so far Ukraine has been using shells and ammunition which were produced before the war started, you know, whereas Russia has been using shells and ammunition, uh, which has been produced after the war started, which sort of points to its defense industrial complex capabilities being much uh, larger, as you pointed out. And how, oh, so this brings us again to the question of uh, uh, not just uh, the capacity to aid uh, Ukraine militarily, which you spoke about when you talked about shells and ammunition, but also the will. I mean, this is the year the, the US is going to the elections, presidential elections are there, then there is a lot of pressure from the Republicans, for instance, on on what are we getting in return for so much of uh, billions of dollars away? I think there is one new package of ninety five billion or whatever billion dollars which is in the pipeline, which they are debating. You know, and you are funneling so much of money and weapons, but uh, there seems to be this kind of a, an an idea that you are not getting results, and like the counteroffensive uh, last year failed. 
So how how is this going to pan out given the fact that there's going to be political pressure on the Biden administration to either show results or not, uh, you know, funnel in more of taxpayers' money to Ukraine? Yeah, clearly, I think Ukraine should have factored this in uh, when they adopted this policy, which is completely dependent on aid from the West, not just Ukraine, Europe as well. Uh, because, uh, you know, now it's clear that there is a very strong Republican opposition in the U.S. Congress towards this unending support for Ukraine. If Ukraine had made some breakthrough in the counteroffensive, I don't think the opposition would have been this strong in the U.S. But after it failed uh, in its counteroffensive, I think the opposition towards this endless support for Ukraine got strengthened in the United States. And so that's why the new aid package is stuck, because the Republicans are now openly opposing Biden's plan to continue to send aid, military and financial aid to Ukraine. They are asking what we are getting in return. So that is one problem. The second problem is the possibility of a Trump presidency, because Trump had said earlier that once he is in power, he would bring the war to an end within days or even 24 hours. So you don't know how he is going to respond because, you know, Trump, despite the general perception, even the last Trump administration was not friendly towards Russia at all. It had imposed a lot of multiple layers of sanctions against Russia. But at the same time, Trump was also skeptical of NATO and this open-ended support for NATO and Ukraine. So we don't know what he is going to do, but there is a possibility of him uh, backing down on the endless open-ended support for Ukraine. So, which means Ukraine could be in trouble because Ukraine cannot stand up to Russia on its own, right? That's now evident. Even with Western support, Ukraine is now struggling. It is losing territories. It is not gaining back the territories. It is losing territories in the war. Uh, so, um, and, and so the possibility of a Trump presidency, I think, should be a nightmare for the Ukrainians. So, what will they do if the U.S. support dries up? And Europe would not be able to support, continue to support Ukraine like the United States does. Europe has its own limitations. It's, I mean, it is clear that its military industrial complex is not as vibrant, as developed as that of the United States or the Russians, right? Uh, so, uh, yes, so I think, uh, you know, U Ukraine is in a very difficult position now. Two years of war, they lost more than 20% of Ukrainian territories. They lost tens of thousands of soldiers, millions of uh, their people have been displaced and their defense strategy is entirely dependent on the United States and NATO in general. So they don't have any easy options and they are now facing political challenges in the United States. So it is in a very tough situation. I should also add that things are not completely rosy for the Russians either. Because the Russians might, maybe the Russians are making gains on the battlefield. But if you, you know, Sweden's accession to NATO, which happened just uh, a few days ago, uh, which is a direct result of this conflict, which Putin, uh, uh, you know, uh, ordered. And uh, uh, now you look at the Baltic Sea, which has become a, uh, basically a NATO la lake, because all countries now except Russia uh, around the Baltic Sea are now NATO members. So Russians may be making gains on the battlefield, but they are also facing strategic setback uh, if you look at the bigger picture.
Right. I mean, uh, if you're looking at the big picture, Stanley, actually, I was going to ask you, you know, how the security landscape seems to have changed. You know, Russia wanted to preempt this kind of a change. But uh, if you look at the gains and the losers, I think Ukraine has, has been a loser so far. Russia, as you rightly pointed out, you know, it's become a, a Bob, the Baltic Sea has become a NATO lake, as you put it. So what are the other uh, gainers and uh, losers in this uh, scenario as far as Europe's security landscape is concerned? I mean, do you think NATO is the biggest gainer, so to speak? So NATO, I mean, uh, as of now, the expansion of NATO, uh, basically, they can argue that that is a plus for them. But NATO is also facing a lot of headwinds, uncertainties. This war has exposed to NATO's capabilities, basically, right? Because NATO is standing solidly behind Ukraine uh, in terms of supplies, but they are struggling to turn around the war. So this war exposed to the limits of the West in general, because the West wants to weaken Russia through economic sanctions and push back Russia uh, by supporting Ukraine. This twin uh, approach doesn't seem to be working as of now. Uh, so I, I don't see any winner as such. And Russia on the other side might have taken ter Ukrainian territories. But I think it's too early to see, to say how Russia is going to come out of this war. Russia is otherwise a great power. But this economic sanctions may have long-term impact on Russia. And Russia is also turning towards Asia. President Putin himself invested a lot on improving energy relationship between Russia and Europe. Everything is now lying in tatters. And so, you see, Ukraine is in a very difficult spot. Russians may have gained territories in Ukraine, but facing strategic and economic challenges. For Europe, which has become now increasingly reliant on the United States, the autonomy of Europe is gone, especially after this war. Because, uh, uh, you know, you, you see uh, France and Germany at, at one point of time had opposed the proposal to take Ukraine into NATO in the Bukhara summit. But now France doesn't have any other option. And, and you look at the language which the, even the French president is talking. So they see now Russia as a major threat. And they are also entirely dependent on the United States. So I don't see any clear winner in this conflict. Everybody is losing in one way or the other. Some would say, Stanley, that uh, given uh, the weakening uh, the weakening of the autonomy of Europe and uh, NATO being exposed and Russia being caught up in this long war with long-term consequences for its economy and so on, they would say that China is perhaps the only gainer from this entire conflict. Would you agree with that assessment? We can say, yeah, yeah, we can say that China is the only great power that is not being directly affected by this conflict because everybody else has taken hits. Uh, you know, as I said, the West's limits have been exposed. Europe is, Europe's security concerns are deepening and Europe is becoming more and more dependent on the United States. Ukraine is losing territories, losing men, losing everything. Russia is facing strategic challenges in uh, resurgent NATO and it's the limitations it is facing in its engagement with Europe and it is facing new kind of challenges in building new relationship and new infrastructure, economic infrastructure while it is pivoting to Asia. China, on the other side, when China looks at this conflict, it sees that the United States, its main strategic rival, is getting stuck in Eastern Europe. And Russia, a country which, with which it had serious issues during the Cold War, is turning towards China. 
or turning towards Asia. And Europe's autonomy is gone. Europe is struggling to come to terms with the new strategic reality. So when China looks at this conflict, I think China sees itself as the only great power that is not uh, getting affected, seriously affected by this conflict. I think it would be welcome news for the Chinese. Right. We're running out of time, Stanley. One last question uh, before we wrap up. So this is uh, now the beginning of the third year of the war. So how do you expect, uh, what can we expect in terms of, you know, how the war unfolds uh, during the course of the next 12 months? Will either side gain an advantage? Uh, are we likely to see something uh, of, a, of, of some kind of a, uh, a climactic moment that would bring, bring the war to an end? Or is it going to drag on for another year or more? Uh, I think the war is likely to drag on. And I also don't think that Ukraine can uh, turn back the Russian momentum, at least in the near future. One likely possibility is that Ukraine would go for a mass mobilization. I think it is in the offing. I don't know when Zelensky is going to issue the decree, but Ukrainians, they need more soldiers. And they can do that. And then once they're mobilized, which would be painful, which would be unpopular. And Zelensky has already said that elections are not going to be held uh, because of the war. Uh, so Zelensky, might, he is going for a mass mobilization. And once uh, he mobilizes more people, you need more time to train them. So that would take months, if not years. So in the long, in the, in the short run, I, I don't think Ukraine has any possibility of turning around the momentum. Uh, in favor of them. While on the other side, the Russians see that they have a window of opportunity. So they would pile up pressure on the battlefield and they would try to take as much territories as they can, particularly in these four oblasts that they had annexed. And I think that they are also mobilizing troops in the south, in uh, uh, in Kherson. Kherson is currently witnessing a major fight between the Russians and the Ukrainians. And if the summer offensive is coming, that would be a frontline long offensive uh, targeting Ukraine's weaknesses. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is what we have to uh, wait for in 2024. Right. So you're saying the war is not likely to sort of uh, wind down. It's going to drag on beyond uh, the next 12 months. One, one quick question, Stanley, before we wrap up. So, I mean... Since the beginning of this war, there has been another big uh, war where the U.S. has been sort of uh, deeply involved, which is the Israel-Gaza war that is happening. Many would call it a genocide, not a war. Nonetheless, so do you think this Israel-Gaza uh, entanglement has had any impact, so to speak, at, at any level on the Ukraine uh, conflict? Because some would argue that uh, the West's uh, entire moral case against Russia you know, an occupying uh, power and so on, which is why you need to intervene and help the occupied territory. That, that moral case is now going to be uh, like deeply undermined by the West's uh, uh, stance on Israel and Gaza. And that is some, that, do you think that's going to have any kind of an impact on public support for the Ukraine war or in any other way? I, I agree with this argument that the moral case, I think the moral case has collapsed after the, Israel-Palestine war, after Israel's war on Gaza broke out. Because it's now very evident that the Western support for Ukraine is not about morality, it's out of their own interest, which is what we've been arguing ever since the conflict began. 
because you look at the numbers no in in ukraine the total civilian casualties on both sides on in ukraine and also in the russian controlled parts of ukraine is roughly 10000 plus according to the united nations total number of civilian casualties in 24 months in gaza which is a tiny enclave of 2.3 million people that is sandwiched between israel proper and mediterranean sea 30000 people were killed in just in less than 5 months and the biden administration still hasn't called for a ceasefire still hasn't called for a ceasefire in gaza so the moral case has collapsed basically so it is out of your interest so what impact the gaza war has had on this ukraine conflict is that i think it has taken the global attention away from ukraine and now the attention is on palestine and it also i think strengthened the voices in the global south that the pressure they faced from the west with regard to their ukraine crisis was not about morality or values because the americans kept saying about values and international laws and international system none of this is applicable to israel yeah the rule based international order rules based international order but none of this is applicable to israel so this has clearly strengthened voices in the global south so that's why you see president lula of brazil is calling it genocide right and lula is also doing openly trade with the russians uh, and he has also invited president putin to visit uh, brazil in the coming months uh so yeah this is what i think uh, basically it has strengthened the voices mainly in the global south it has also taken the global attention off the ukraine war uh, after this crisis uh, began and it is clearly it is now evident that the moral case president biden tried to build around ukraine has you know it's collapsed it's now lying on the ground right uh, thank you so much stanley i mean that sort of brings us uh, brings this episode of in focus to an end thank you so much stanley pleasure talking to you Thanks Ambal pleasure In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues In the meantime you can find our podcast on Spotify Apple Podcasts Stitcher and other platforms Just search for In Focus by the Hindu We'll see you soon